Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, 1 Peter, Peter's first uh, epistle to a gathering of Jewish believers who are going through a time of hardship. And uh, this is a part of our ongoing series. We have three or four more weeks left in this. Uh, this cognitive behavioral theology, little playoff cognitive behavioral, uh, uh, behavior, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, uh, which is a therapeutic technique which is used in uh, psychological practice, psychiatric practices. And we're playing off of that uh, because we know that theology preceded psychology as an academic discipline. And strangely enough, many of the principles that are used in, uh, in therapeutic techniques actually have their moorings in scripture. And of course, from a biblical worldview, we believe that the wholeness and the wellness that God would desire for us cannot be realized apart from having a spiritual foundation rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how mentally healthy you are or how physically fit you are, if you do not have this firm foundation of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then you can't really have the holistic wellness that God would desire for us, we who are created in His image. My prayer for our church family over these past 19 months, that as we find ourselves in these unprecedented times, that it would be for us an unprecedented learning experience. That as you go through this, what no other generation has gone through for over a hundred years, this pandemic experience, I pray, that, I pray that we would not waste this opportunity to learn to grow, to mature in our faith, because what we are finding and what many are experiencing is that their faith really was not as mature, it was not as developed as they thought it was uh, prior to the onset of this pandemic. They've been exposed. That their faith was not as rich, it was not as foundational as they thought it to be. They have been shaken and rattled to the core. So I hope that none of us would waste this opportunity to gain some insight to our relationship with the Lord, the depth and the quality of that relationship with Him, and grow from this and learn from it so that we'll be better prepared down the road for the battles that await on the horizon. Now, one of the things that has emerged these, these past nine months, what many people are, are dealing with and realizing for the first time, is that they are, they are dealing with some emotions that they have never heretofore experienced or those emotions they've had before uh, have become more pronounced. And, and some are experiencing shame over these kind of negative emotions and feelings or they're feeling guilty about having these kind of emotions because, because they don't lack for a bold declaration of, of faith. It's, that's not the issue. Peter is even writing to, to a community of faith that are struggling with these kind of, of issues. But, but there are some who have this, this, this very real, profound faith. They, they boast boldly of, of their faith, but at the same time, they're dealing with some very real, negative, debilitating sometimes emotions. And I bring all that to the surface, not, not to shame, not to create guilt, but, but to say to you here today, you, you are in really good company. You are not alone in this. You are not unique to these kinds of experiences. Where you have this, this faith that you boldly confess, and, but there is this seeming contradiction with, with the feelings 
that you have. Peter was addressing an audience not unlike us experiencing those same sentiments. It's expressed here in in verse 6 where where Peter in writing says, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That word distress, it probably in some of your different English translations, it's probably uh, translated differently. It, it can be correctly translated as, as, as extreme anxiety. Some of you, you, you greatly rejoice, but, but you're, you're experiencing this extreme anxiety, this pain, this sorrow, this, this distress. Well, what is it that Paul is alluding to? When he says here in verse 6, that first clause, in this you greatly rejoice. Well, what he's speaking to, what what the people rejoice in, is the salvation that God is accomplishing on their behalf. You go back up into verse 3, beginning at verse 3. Peter offers this praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, and Paul is laying a foundation. Listen, your stability is not based upon your feelings. That's really what he's setting the stage to say. The salvation that that is yours, it's not based upon how you feel on any given day. It's not based upon your merit, the works that that you have done, whether you deserve it or not. The salvation that God is accomplishing is, is, is emerging from his mercies alone who according to his great mercy has caused us, God the agent, God the initiator of this salvation, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This isn't some kind of ancient hope. This isn't something that, that we really don't believe that we're just perpetuating, that we're, because, that we're supposed to as the people of God, as the community of faith. No, ours is a living hope. It is not a dead hope. It is a living hope based upon the reality and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So ours is a living hope. Paul says that our hope is a hope and our salvation is a salvation that is moving towards a different kind of future. The salvation of which Paul speaks and which Paul describes here, it's, it's not something that is preoccupied with the past. It is something that looks to the future. This idea that dominates Western evangelical Christianity is when we use the language and we ask the question, are you saved? That really would not be understood by a New Testament audience. Because in their understanding of salvation, this is, a, this is something that is not punctiliar in time that you just point back to, but this is something, as I said last week, that is linear in fashion. This salvation is something that God is accomplishing in us and will ultimately consummate with the coming of Christ. So the New Testament audience and the readers of the New Testament They would have been more comfortable in that day and time receiving these letters and understanding the language of salvation as I am being saved. This new birth has accomplished something in me. It has begun something in me that will mature, that will grow, that will consummate in the coming of Christ. 
This futuristic view and movement is seen in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Listen, again, he's establishing this firm foundation not built upon our feelings. Our inheritance, three adjectives he used here, it's imperishable. It is undefiled. It will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And not just this inheritance that is ours, but even we, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That will be the consummation of this work of salvation that God is accomplishing in us. It is something that is, we need to fasten ourselves. Listen, church. When we talk and we speak and we use the language of this living hope that is ours, it means that we need to fasten ourselves to a vision of the future. That we do not allow our hope to be determined by the present circumstances. So it is this kind of salvation that God is accomplishing in this, he says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. They are rejoicing over this kind of salvation that God has accomplished. But at the same time, there seems to be a conflict. Because the text says there at the end in verse 6, they are distressed by various trials. They're experiencing extreme anxiety, sorrow, pain over their present circumstances. And for many, it probably seems like it's a contradiction to its faith, but I really don't believe that to be so. Because in my reading and my studying of the Christian faith and my, in my study and the preaching and the teaching of God's word, what I see in this and in my own pilgrimage, it's not so much a contradiction as it is a paradox. Two things that seemingly contradict one another, but these really do not. That I can greatly rejoice in this salvation that that is mine, that God is accomplishing. While at the same time have some very negative, debilitating experiences. Caused by circumstances. You see, these two things can actually live in symbiotic relationship with one another. And they do, if you're going to be honest. If Paul was being very honest, very forthright, if you go back to 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, listen to what Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, we're, we're, we are afflicted in every way. We're having some very negative experiences. Our circumstances are, are not good. We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. Hear the language of hope? We're perplexed. There's some things I don't understand. You know, I've prayed three times that a thorn in the flesh might be removed from me. And all the Lord has said on each of those occasions is my grace is sufficient for you. 
But Lord, I think if you were to remove this flesh, I, 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 think my, I think my ministry could be taken to another level. Lord, I think I, should, I think I could accomplish so much more in your kingdom's work if you would just remove these impediments, these hardships and trials in my, in my life. My grace is sufficient for you. So understand what, what Paul is dealing with. Paul says, I'm, I'm perplexed by this. But you know what else he says? He uses the language of hope. He says, but I'm not, not despairing. I'm not despairing. I admit I'm perplexed, but I, I'm not despairing. We're persecuted. But we're not abandoned. We are struck down time and time again. We, we are struck down. But you know what? We're not destroyed. So I'm curious as I read this and as it was brought to my attention in, in reading 1 Peter and coming across this, this paradox between these greatly rejoicing people, but who are at the same time distressed in their faith. And that's really what I want us to examine a bit more this, this morning. Because here's the problem. Here, here's the first thing. Here, here's the problem. Notice it in, in verse 6. Here's the problem you run into with this paradox that we live with. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, it, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, th- this, is where, this is where the paradox becomes problematic. It's when these two things, greatly rejoicing, in our salvation, and this, and this distress and this anxiety, when these two things get out of balance. And when this distress that, that Peter describes here, when this distress becomes, uh, becomes a heaviness that, that is overwhelming, when this, when this distress becomes your prevailing mood, that's when it becomes problematic. When it, when it impacts your witness, the testimony of, of your faith, when this distress becomes the prevailing mood that people see in you, then, it, then it's a problem. And as I've said through the entirety of this, this series, what we're really dealing with is principalities and powers. And if Satan cannot keep you from becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, then the next thing he wants to do is to destroy your life to, and, and bring such misery to your life to the point that you will abandon the faith, that you'll walk away from the faith, or he will get inside your head to such a degree where you are so self-preoccupied with these kinds of negative emotions, negative feelings, that people will never see the light of Christ in you. So he either wants to destroy you or he wants to diminish your light. And that, when it, that is when it becomes problematic in the life of faith. Because you and I have a duty and an obligation to rise above these various trials. And listen, don't hear in this passage, don't hear in this passage that if you're really a person of faith, you need to, you need to pretend you, you aren't experiencing these feelings. 
Listen, you need to just, if, if you're a follower of Christ, just stick your head in the sand and pretend that you're really not having these negative emotions. Just cover your eyes, cover your ears, and just cover your mouth, and, and let's just play make-believe. Like, we, we are not really experiencing these kinds of things. We are not called to be Stoics. Even Paul said, you, you grieve, but don't grieve as if you have no hope. There's a way to grieve properly. There's a, a way that we as believers and followers of Christ are to, to, to journey through our suffering and our hardships in life in a way that brings witness and testimony to the hope that is in us. Stoicism is not a Christian virtue. Stoicism was created by a Greek philosopher by the name of Zeno. It's a philosophy towards life, but it's not a Christian virtue. We're not called just, just to keep a stiff upper lip, just suck it up and get through in life. Emotions are a part of who we are. These feelings are a part of our, of our personality. It's a part of being real. It's a part of being honest. It's a part of being, being transparent. And so it's not just pretending this rejoicing it's not just a a constant state of 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 hilarity that he's speaking to but it's a joy that transcends our present circumstances it is a rejoicing and an attitude in our approach to living life and comprehending life and understanding life and reconciling the hardships and the suffering of this life with our faith, our hope is something that transcends present circumstances. Our joy is an anticipatory kind of joy, even now in the present tense, because I know that this isn't it. I know my present hardship and difficulties, this is not the final word. I have a joy that looks beyond this present circumstance and so my call as a follower of Christ is to rise above these feelings even when they're real even when I'm feeling it and to respond in a way that reflects the hope that is in me in all kinds of trials you and I don't get the benefit when Paul speaks or Peter rather speaks of these various trials some of your translations may be instead of various trials it may say manifold trials it means many colored it means that, that, that your hardships and difficulties in life, it comes in all shapes and forms. You and I don't get to measure the degree what is worthy of a Christian response and what is unworthy of a Christian response. In all various trials, whatever their shape and form, you and I have to respond in a way that people will see the light of hope that dwells in us. And so when these two things get out of balance, when this becomes the prevailing mood, this distress, it becomes harmful to our witness and our testimony. I want to talk to you about a principle. And this is a very helpful principle that is found in this, in this very same verse. In this greatly rejoice, that is the salvation that God is accomplishing. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, all right, right now, for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
And again, when he talks about rejoicing, this isn't some constant state of hilarity, nor is it a denial of the very real pain that we're experiencing, the feelings that we're having. But it, again, it is an anticipation. It is an anticipatory kind of joy that I, can, that I can live with right now, even in my present circumstances, because I know the present circumstances are just for a little while. Now, therein, that, those two words, in a little while, those three words, there's your principle. There's the principle that Peter is holding forth here. There, there is going to be suffering. There is, going, there is brokenness. There is suffering. There is hardship. That's a principle that, that is prevalent throughout the entirety of Scripture. And I'm, and, and I'm so often shocked that we even have to hold that out, that I even have to say that. It, 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 I could spend the rest of this hour going through Bible verses that, that talk about Christians suffering, the people of God suffering, and yet I'm always taken back by, by Christians who are, who, who are seemingly knocked off kilter because of suffering. I mean, when, you, when you've got a symbol, when the symbol of your faith is a cross, you can, pretty, you can pretty well count on suffering. That we're not going to be exempt from the hardships and the trials and the challenges and, and all the various things that, that happen to us in life. That's just a principle of living life in this world. There's going to be trials. You're going to be tested by these trials. But what's important here is perspective. Because anything you're going through, even if it's for the rest of your life, it's just for a little while. It's just a little while. If you're 40, something comes into your life, a tragedy, you lived till 90, 50 years, you've got to live with this cataclysmic change. Things will never be the same. It's just a little while. It's just a little while. Because eternity is my perspective. Paul would even have that same view of our hardship. And listen, this is no diminishment. Don't hear Bobby saying, oh, my pain's not important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the pain. The pain is very real. The challenge is very real. The suffering is painful. When you have something, these kind of trials that divide your life to life before then and life after it, there's nothing fun about that. But it's a matter of perspective of how you move forward in the life of faith. If we go back to 2 Corinthians again, that same chapter, chapter 4, Listen to what Paul said. He, he's already shared with us very openly and honestly about his feelings, his, his emotion, his hardships, that he's afflicted, that, that he's crushed, that, that he's been persecuted, that he has a sense of um, that, that life is hard. But down in verse 17, he says, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Anything we're going through right now, anything we have to face, it's momentary. And while it, while it certainly is heavy in the moment, listen, it's just a momentary light affliction. 
when, when compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now, that becomes comforting only when, you, when your anticipation is of glory, when you're looking ahead to glory, when you truly look ahead to the coming of Christ. And what is to be received and what is to be experienced in being with our Lord and, and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. It's only when you look ahead to that, when that is truly your heart's passion, only then can you have a perspective of, you know what, everything I'm facing here, this is just momentary light affliction, no comparison to the weight of glory, the weight of all those things that God has in store for me, what my eye has not seen, what my ear has not heard, what my mind has never even comprehended. Everything that we experience now is just for a little while. And then a passage that catches us off guard a bit where he says in that same word though it's even now for for just a little while he says if if necessary well how are we how are we to take that if if it's necessary to face these kind of various trials and hardships well a couple of things I would say about about that clause if necessary first of all it says to me and my understanding of this is that is that this is not a part of God's created design. This, this, was not, this kind of suffering was not ordained by God in creation. That this is something, these various trials is something that, that has been brought about by principalities and powers, the rulers of the air of this world. They brought the brokenness to this world. They are the ones that, that rebelled against what God had ordained. So this, is some, this suffering is something that has been brought about by external forces that have broken God's created order. Which brings us to a second thing that is vital, most important, about this phrase, if necessary. I hear in these words, if necessary, that it indicates suffering is under the control of God. That the things I go through, the things that you will go through, these various trials in life that we're going to have to endure and persevere for, for the entire course of our lives, None of, these, none of these things that external forces have brought upon this world making it into a broken creation, broken because of sin, None of this has escaped the hand of our sovereign God. That even through these things, we will find that the sovereignty of God will prevail. What Satan intended for evil, what principalities and powers intended for your destruction and mine, God causes all things to work together for good. It's what Paul said to the Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And I'll say again to you, as I've said many times before, it's just as important what that verse doesn't say as what it does say. Because one view of that passage is, is very fatalistic. And, and to me, this understanding is much more hopeful. 
What's important to hear is not that God, the verse doesn't say God causes all things to happen. He doesn't. We put a great deal at the feet of God that are the result of principalities and powers, the brokenness of creation. Nor does it say that everything that happens in life is good. Most of us here have lived enough of life to know that not everything's good. God causes all things, what Satan would intend for evil, what principalities and powers would intend for your destruction and mine. And God in his sovereignty can take those things and fashion them. Listen, his eternal purposes will not be thwarted. None of this escapes the mind of God and the hand of God. And so a final thing. It's the proof. We've seen, a, we've seen the problem when these things become out of kilter. We've, we've seen the principle that suffering is a part of this life. For, it's just for a little while. But here's the proof. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith is the genuineness of your faith. As we go through and as we are distressed by these various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. There it is again. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining an outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You and I somehow in our thinking and our processes, and this is where our faith comes in, is offering faith responses to the adverse moments of life. It's in those moments that I have to to realize that God is able to use this to shape me and to fire me in a way, to, to purge me in a way that makes my faith more genuine. This is where the genuineness of my faith is proved out. Paul would talk about this a great deal. Just as Paul used this word over and over again about distress, Paul would use the same language about the genuineness of faith. God, Paul, we see in Paul's writing, Paul was far more concerned about God seeing the genuineness of his faith, the genuineness of his faith being exposed and God evaluating as it such. Paul was far more concerned about that than he was the opinions of men. If Paul was concerned about the opinions of men, we'd read the Corinthian letters and we saw Paul did a terrible job of that. They didn't like Paul. But Paul made it real clear he was far more concerned about God seeing the genuineness of his faith and the genuineness of his faith being exposed. And it's an an analogy with which this audience was familiar, the refining of gold. Putting gold in the fire and the crucible and of heat to remove all impurities, the dross. And as valuable as gold was to its owner, some of the day would come when even that gold, the purest of metals, would be worthless of no value whatsoever. 
Paul would say, or Peter would say, if a jeweler is that willing to put, to refine gold that someday is just going to be worthless, then how much more we should seek the refiner's fire in our own faith and life for a reward that is eternal. See, we can't shy away from the trials and circumstances of life. It does no good to stick our head in the sand or to shout, in Jesus' name over and over and renounce them, thinking they're going to go away. They will not go away. They're here for a little while. That's the principle set forth in Scripture. But how will I face them? Will I allow it to be something that, that in the sovereign purposes of God will refine me all the more in my faith and the calling of Christ upon my life? It's no fun, but the refiner's fire God being the refiner, the refiner's fire. If it's rightly experienced, if we allow it to do its work, the genuineness of our faith is exposed all the more. I've had probably a couple of incidences in the past 20 years, maybe three in 30 years of what I would describe as refining fire moments. Things that, that redefined my life and my, my ministry. Not that I was lacking in commitment, but things that happened that, that, that made my focus all the more intentional, all the more refined, all the more focused. Preaching and teaching became more, more urgent. The realization that you do no one any favors by trying to make it palatable, trying to make it accommodating to the lifestyle that you would like to live. But a sense of urgency that the time is short and that eternity is long. That eternity hangs in the balance. Redefined life in ministry. So when you go, go through this, the challenge is going to be real. It'll, it'll test you. The refiner's fire always does. It will, it will either push you away or it will draw you closer and your faith will be made more genuine. In the last days, the church is going to go through a winnowing process. I believe this pandemic is part of it. When the national statistics, as I've shared with you a few weeks ago, when the national statistic is 38, that a church attendance today is back 38, 35 to 65 percent of what it was pre-COVID, there were a great many that were already marginal. You know, the polling agencies today consider average church attendance to be once every four to six weeks. If you attend once every four to six weeks, according to polling agencies in this country, you're considered an average church attender. 35 years ago, when I started ministry, average church attendance by polling agencies was considered to be someone who attended church three out of four Sundays. So we've gone from three out of four Sundays in a month to one Sunday every four to six weeks. 
And there's been a refining the past 18 months where those that were marginal and barely hanging on, they've, the refining fires have exposed them. Are you distressed this morning? Are you filled with sorrow, pain, distress? Let me tell you, grab it, seize it, embrace it, sit with it, walk with it, because it's just a little while. And on the other side of this little while is the outcome of your faith. On the other side is the goal that you're living for, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, oftentimes in our guilt, we fail to acknowledge and be truthful about these paradoxical emotions that we feel, even when, even when we rejoice greatly in our faith. Father, help us to see that we cannot allow these negative emotions to overtake us, to steal away the, the light of hope that dwells in us. That as we go from this place, regardless of how we are feeling, that we would hold forth a response for the world to see that reflects the light of our hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.